It gives me particular pleasure to be running a workshop today on what I consider to be one of the very, very greatest of all music dramas or operas in the entire Western musical canon, Mozart's The Magic Flute. I'm joined today by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and their leader, Leslie Hatfield, for this voyage of discovery, just in aspects of this piece. Now, The Magic Flute is a Zingspiel, a German word meaning literally song play. So it's a slightly different tradition from that of opera seria, which is a much more kind of heightened and academic form. In a way, Zingspiel is the ultimate ancestor of the modern-day musical. The idea of having dialogue and music framing each other, butting up against each other. Jonathan Miller used to make a really amusing point about this, that very often singers, who of course are singers, not speakers, find dialogue very, very difficult. And if you'll pardon the analogy, he used to say that singers were a bit like seals. So when they were deep in ten fathoms of song, they're very comfortable indeed, Put them in dialogue is a bit like putting them on the rocks under a very hot sun and removing all the water. I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, that our singers tonight would not uh, fall into that category. In fact, we're not going to put them to the test. So uh, we start with one half of what makes up a sort of double act, I suppose, the character of Papageno. Delighted to welcome Roderick Williams joining us today, singing that role. Roddy, who is Papageno, do you think? What, what characterises him? What are his fundamentals? I think for me, Papageno is, is something of an everyman. He's a bird catcher. That's the only real description we have of him. He exists in this place. We don't know where it is. He doesn't really know where it is. He just exists in it. And he's most put out when he discovers that there are other lands when he first meets Tamino. He is a sort of everyman for the audience. I think he's meant to identify with the audience and they with him. He often speaks directly to them. And although there is this opera seria happening around him when the other two characters uh, arrive, he very much speaks the audience's mind, I feel, when he sees these events. It's certainly true what you say, that uh, even though this is a zingspiel, there is another kind of heightened order of musical conception which is going on around the zingspiel, around the more kind of pantomimical elements, I suppose. And he was played by Schikaneder at the first performance, the guy who'd written the libretto and indeed directed the first production, who was something of a pop star, really, wasn't he? I mean, he was the most celebrated Hamlet and King Lear of his day. He comes on, he sings this first song, he doesn't know where he is, he's covered in feathers, he announces he's a bird catcher, and he wants just two things, really. Food and sex. Simple as that. I guess it's a, a very human reaction as well. Um, you'd expect, as the opera opens with this very dramatic moment of uh, Tamida being chased by a, a huge serpent, that the audience thinks it's going to be one show, and then suddenly the door opens, and in comes the big actor of the day, dressed, as you say, like a turkey or something, and suddenly you feel you're going to be another show. I think it also, I have no idea, you listed all of Shikhanez's achievements, but I don't know that you mentioned he was a singer. So I have a feeling, I mean, I have no idea, but I have a feeling he could have been quite a rough singer. The, the music from him is very simple, very folk song-like. Um, so it would have been quite refreshing to have just an actor coming in and singing, taking part in an opera, a bit like sort of Billy Connolly arriving on the stage of the Royal Opera and singing alongside Rene Fleming, maybe. Well, let's look at his first entrance and let's sing his first verse. Thank you. 
Drum kann ich froh und lustig sein, denn alle Vögel sind ja mein. It's very simple, rustic music, which tells us a lot about the character from Mozart's point of view. We're going to have three verses of it saying, roughly speaking, the same sort of thing, built very much like a folk song. So, from the off, you know that he's not a man of artifice. He's a man of rugged, simple honesty, really. There is a reality, as you say, Roddy, an honesty about him, and therefore a compassion and a good-heartedness, so that even much later on in the piece, he doesn't necessarily succeed to nearly the same extent as Tomino does in the trials that they're made to go through. It's the goodness of his heart that ultimately redeems him. Something that makes this song quite difficult, though, is the fact that it is strophic, the same tune coming round and round again, and Mozart makes absolutely no attempt to develop it or vary it, which is very unusual for Mozart. Does it not make it hard for you as a performer? Well, I think, again, back to Schikaneder, I suspect that Mozart kept it simple, kept it strophic like that, so that Schikaneder could do his thing. Maybe in the second aria, which we'll sing at the very end, uh, Mozart left himself, Mozart, or the, or the person playing the glockenspiel, a bit more room to do something musical. But here, I suspect Schikaneder might have done a Rex Harrison and spoken his way through it and actually used his acting uh, abilities and skills to colour it. Well, let's now sing the song in its entirety. Um, obviously, the audience at home can't see how you develop in an actorly sense this piece, <laughs> juggling and so on. You can mime it and we can imagine it. Um, using your, your pipes to catch birds, the pipes today, of course, being played by a flute rather than pan pipes as such, and then taking forward the idea of traps, of being able to trap all the women and then barter the women for sugar and then tempt your favourite woman in with the offer of sugar. Very simplistic stuff, ladies and gentlemen. Mich. 
Dann sperrte ich sie bei mir ein und alle Mädchen fern mein. Alle Mädchen werden mein, so tauschte ich Bazucke ein, die welche mir am liebsten wäre, dir geb ich gleich den Zucker her. Und küsste sie mich zärtlich, dann wär sie mein Weib und ich ihr Schief an meiner Seite ein, ich wiegte wie ein Kind sie ein. So, Papageno's first utterance in The Magic Flute. You'll have noticed, I think, the simplicity and the honesty of the orchestral idiom as well. And that's true not just in the accompanying of folk song like numbers like that. You have to remember that partly Mozart was writing for a suburban theatre band. He and Schikaneda, who created this piece, were true products, I think, of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. A genuine belief that all people are born equal, regardless of background or rank in a social sense. And one of the things that Schikaneda had pioneered was a theatre in the suburbs of Vienna called Theater an der Wien, which is where this piece is premiered, to a largely middle-class audience. And it was an absolute wow. You can't imagine how much of a, a shocking surprise it was at that time to be playing to such people. Most people who went to the opera went to the court theatre, and they were invariably upper class. I mean, by the year 1800, Schikaneda reckoned he'd clocked up 200 performances of this piece, and it spread far and wide across Europe to every German opera theatre and beyond, even coming to London, well, relatively soon thereafter. So, we introduce now the other principal male character whose journey we're going to chart through the magic flute, the Prince Tamino. To sing it with us, James Gilchrist. James, very well, welcome to you. So, if uh, Papageno is earthy, fecund, in love with very kind of material things, in a way. Tamino is on a very different kind of quest, isn't he? He's the other side of the coin, really. He represents, I suppose, high art, intellect, and far from the earthy, bestial nature of Papageno, he's a more cerebral character, I think. One of the uh, things which um, is, is so clear in the, in the musical lines that Tamino has is how Mozart views him differently, as you say, from Papageno. Whilst they may be equal, they're equal in terms of yin and yang being equal. Yeah. So the kind of melodic line you get in your first major aria here, Dies Bildnis ist bis schön, this portrait which has been given, hasn't he? He's been given this picture of Pamina, yeah. who's the daughter of the so-called star-blazing queen of night, and he instantly falls in love with her. Yes, that's right. And what you say about the vocal line is crystal clear. We've had Papageno very much uh, within a small vocal range, a simple tune, and the, Tamino's first sort of big aria utterance has this very high-reaching major sixth right at the beginning, this bildness right up to the top of the voice. It's sort of exultant, almost priapic exactly. as a sixth, and isn't it's, it? It's ecstatic, isn't it? Because he's just seen this glorious picture Dies Bild, es ist bezaubernd schön, wie noch kein 
immediately there, we've got this ravishing rise of the sixth, mm. this picture which is just enchanting me. But then immediately, Mozart changes tack, and we get Ich fühle es, I feel it, I feel it. And you get this kind of cramped, constricted, diminished intervals which gradually widen, don't they? So already you get a sense that this man is also tormented. Because he's clearly fallen in love, and we all know that as the audience, that he's immediately enraptured with this lady. But he's never felt this emotion before. What is it? What is this strange thing that has overcome me? I just don't understand it. And he says, could it be that this is love? And this ecstasy just overflows in the work, I feel. And it goes higher and higher and higher. I mean, it's so true to how young men feel when exactly. they get that feeling. And, and furthermore, he doesn't know what to do. The music just stops. How should I behave with this emotion? What would I do were I to meet this glorious woman? And, of course, the answer is I would embrace her to my heart and we'd live happily ever after. The old fairy tale coming again. on a dominant seventh chord there and then of course what comes out of that James is a complete sense of resolution he knows exactly that he would clasp her in all tenderness to his breast and she would be his but we'll perform now this masterly expression of gradually burgeoning love and incidentally you hear three chords at the very very start the number three is absolutely key to the magic flute it's a, a number I suppose imbued with magic for all of us, not just for Freemasons, for whom it also, I believe, has a special significance. And when you hear it right at the very beginning of the opera, these three chords, they're voiced in a certain way. Here they're voiced slightly differently, and they occur again later on in the piece, voiced slightly differently again. But essentially they are the three chords which are at the root of the certainly Masonic symbolism of this piece. Nicht wahr, nicht nennen. 
Now we move forward to a quintet which occurs just slightly later in the first act and this gives us a chance to hear from the three ladies, great emissaries of the Queen of Night herself. And to sing those three roles from the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, it's a pleasure to welcome Jennifer Walker, Stephanie Edwards and Martha McLaurinan. And here we get Papageno literally with his mouth clamped shut. When he first met Tamino, he'd sworn to him that it was he who'd saved him from the serpent who was trying to kill Tamino. In fact, it was the intervention of these three ladies, these representatives of the Queen of Night. The punishment to Papageno for lying to Tamino is a padlock which literally glues his lips together. And there's an interesting thing here, Roddy, that uh, I believe that that's a particular device based on the sort of the epitome of the German street clown who was known as Hans Wurst, not to be uh, confused with Bratwurst, but of a similar kind of nature. And he used to do one particular term which involved basically not being able to open his lips. So your first utterance here is, well, through pursed lips. <laughs> That's right. I have a feeling it's a very good idea that Shikaneja himself was, uh, was silenced for a little bit. And uh, I'm sure the joke was all on him. I'm sure everybody would have loved that at the time. Papageno has these wonderful sort of up and down as he's struggling in his musical form. And Tomino is very straightforward and rather straight-laced about it. I'm sorry, I'm terribly sorry, I can't help you here, old chap, sort of thing. <laughs> it's interesting that this number reveals, again, more about the characters. Gradually, we're learning more and more about them. We learn quite a lot about the nature of the three ladies as well, who are explaining what's going to happen next in this journey, which now clearly is going to involve both Tomino and Papageno. So somehow it's a blend of comedy and a kind of numinous beauty. <laughs> So 
So you can hear, Papageno's got clean, honest leaps of thirds and fourths. Tamino, on the other hand, again cramped and constricted, sort of unrooted in the harmony. And Tamino's accompaniment is sustained and held and also restrained, whereas Papageno's is simple, foursquare and choppy. The very first time we met Papageno, he was boasting, whereas Tamino here is saying, I'm too weak to help you. He's being modest, and I think this is another little side to their characters. If I could leap in there also, you were just saying earlier on about Papageno being bass and, and representing the bass part of our instincts, I actually feel that a lot of the time Papageno says and does what we as the audience would do, and Tamino does and says what we would like to do, what we think we should do in those circumstances, but are unable to. The first lady comes in and she says, the Queen has forgiven you, Papageno, so we're going to uh, remove your padlock, which comes as something of a relief. So you can hear Papageno is ecstatic about having had his padlock removed, although he says immediately, that means I can start chattering again, and he does it all on one monotone, which is a kind of particularly cute idea. You can hear how preening the three ladies are. They sing this kind of lustrous three-part harmony together. Remember, they are all already in love with Prince Tamino. And you can hear there that they went into a kind of hymn-like texture, all five of them, which is uh, really music that Mozart uses in order to express this first moral here, that actually, if all liars were receiving uh, padlocks on their mouths, instead of hate, slander and bile, love and brotherhood would prevail. And so the three ladies now give Tamino a magic flute. This magic flute, incidentally, was made by Pamina's father. Pamina we haven't met yet, but we're shortly to. Pamina's mother is the Queen of Night. Her father is long dead. He was a very magical man himself. His best friend was Zoroastro, the high priest, who at this point in the play we still believe is a thoroughly evil man. Shortly we will find out that actually it's the reverse, that the Queen of Night is evil and Zoroastro is the personification of goodness. Anyhow, Pamina's father many years ago made this flute, which is enchanted, out of the wood of a thousand-year-old tree. The three ladies give it to Tamino as really a sort of a seal of protection for him, that it will help him in many ways through the trials that he's inevitably going to have to undergo. He says, this flute is so extraordinary, it's worth more than golden crowns, and by it, mankind's happiness and contentment are increased. Und so 
So empfehle ich mich. Nein, dafür bedank ich mich. Von euch selbst hörte ich, dass er wie ein Tigertier sich ließ ohne alle Gnade nichts erraste, Hund und Braten, Braten, Hund und Braten, Braten, setzte mich den Hunden für. Die schönste Prinz vor ihr allein, der Besast vor sein Diener sein. Dass doch der Prinz mein Teufel wäre, mein Leben ist verliebt, am Ende schleicht bei meiner Ehre ihr von mir wie ein Dieb. So the ladies are saying to Papageno, you're going to go along with Tamino, you are going to be his guide. He'll protect you, but you will guide him, so that they become mutually dependent. That's the idea the Queen of Night has set out for them. So the ladies then offer Papageno his present, which is a set of magic bells, which will be his ring of protection, as it were. The music then subsides into a gorgeous andante, and only at this point does Mozart introduce clarinets, giving a whole new colour and a sense of the warm purpose to this music and the gentle instructions of the three ladies. They're explaining exactly where these two men are going to go. They're going to go to Zarastro's castle, and three young and fair gentle and wise boys are going to guide them on their way. by not only the sentiment of what the three is saying, but their very musical line. We'll perform now the whole of this quintet for you. Notice the number three, never far away. Three tiny phrasettes, as it were, which end this quintet. Three, not two, not four. Soll meine Wahl, soll deine 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 Wahl,
Oh 
fast-forwarding now to pretty much the end of Act 1, and uh, we find Pamina, who is, in theory, imprisoned in Zarastro's palace. In fact, she's not imprisoned at all. She's been placed there under the guardianship of Zarastro, who is an old friend of her long-dead father. And she's been there for some time, and, of course, the Queen of Knights' avowed wish is not only to retrieve her daughter, but also, in so doing, to destroy Zarastro's power. Anyhow, Tamino and Papageno arrive, and it's Papageno who first spots her in the castle and manages to get into her. And there's a bit of a scuffle, which I won't go into, involving another man, a very wicked prince called Monostatos, who's a bit like a kind of bad mirror image of Papageno in a funny way, where Papageno is saved, ultimately, despite his inability to complete the trial, simply by his goodness, the goodness in his heart. Monostatos obviously has no goodness in his heart whatsoever, so he suffers a fearful punishment at the end of the opera. Anyway, these two are thrown together, very unlikely partners at this moment in the piece. We have this very noble woman, Pamina, and we have this earthy birdcatcher, Papageno. Singing Pamina for us today, Eilish Tynan. Eilish, a very warm welcome to you. How do you perceive Pamina? When I first started looking at it, I thought, who is this needy desperado? I mean, no, I mean, at least Tamino's seen a picture of her to fall in love with. She's seen nothing. And then sings this big lofty love aria about men and women, when I'm sure probably at this stage of her life she probably knows nothing about men and women and life in general, you know? She perhaps as a 16-year-old can't possibly be, have the kind of the wherewithal to express lofty sentiments like she's about to with Papageno, somehow as a symbol of sort of idealised beauty, of idealised heroism in a female sense, she can. But there's another essential moral, one of the fundamental morals of the piece as, whole, as a whole, which gets expressed in this duet. There's an old, old Christian belief, and indeed a Buddhist belief, that the embrace of God is consummated in the union of the male and female principles. So as this duet expresses man and woman, woman and man, reaching towards the deity. So there's this sense that at the, in the end of the piece, when Tamino and Pamina are united and accepted into what had been an exclusively male order, which is what happens at the end of the opera, that there is a vision of a new utopia. That's what this piece expresses incredibly simply. And there is a gorgeous sort of purity about this. Two almost identical verses of about 16 bars and then a coda of about the same length again. A delicious little kind of swaying Siciliana-style accompaniment to it through which these absolute truths are expressed. Three. 
once again, Papageno is enjoying being in the company of someone who is, as he sees it, of higher birth. You do wonder whether there is a slight snobbishness in this perspective, this enlightenment view, which is that somehow we are all equal, but actually high-born people are still more impressive than low-born people. Well, I think it comes partly from the way uh, he copies what she sings, and he matches her line for line until this coda we're about to sing, where she decorates... And this is a step too far for the Papageno sort of character, so he just stands back and lets her get on with it. But otherwise, um, this is a, about as noble a piece of music as Papageno sings in the whole opera. It's one of those perfect pieces after which audiences tend to go, hmm, to make that noise, audience noise. Whenever I perform this in the past, this is just such a perfect piece. There's no other response. Well, again, Mozart has perfect dramatic timing because it's placed just before the end of Act One, so in theory, I suppose, just before the interval. So, as Roddy mentioned, Pamina's sumptuous ornamentation, she and Papageno can't ever be entirely equal. Although I think beyond that, this is ultimately a symbol of classless as well as domestic and sexual harmony. We'll perform it in its entirety now.
Eilish Tynan as Pamina, Roderick Williams as Papageno, that extraordinary duet towards the close of Act One of The Magic Flute by Manon, BBC National Orchestra of Wales and their leader, Leslie Hatfield. So, Papageno and Pamina are together. They've met, they've united, they've had this moment of kind of symbiotic unity, if you like, in the expression of that particular moral we just heard in the duet. Tamino joins them and they meet the high priest, Zarastro. This person we've believed to be, up until now, completely and utterly evil. This is the Queen of Night's view of him. Of course, there's an age-old rivalry between them. The Queen of Night wants to unseat him to remove his power so that she can gain more for herself. He, of course, is not imprisoning Pamina, but rather being her guardian, as I explained earlier. So, he now sets Tamino and Papageno three trials to undergo in order to attain ultimate enlightenment and ultimately to become initiates of this special order of sanctity, which is personified by Sarastro and the other priests. These three trials that Tamino are going to have to undergo are as follows. Basically, the first one, and indeed the second one, are vows of silence, that he'll be put in increasingly difficult situations where he is absolutely not allowed to respond in any way at all. The final trial, which of course much later on he will undergo with Pamina, which is a completely new idea really, um, is that they have to go through fire and they have to go through water. And then ultimately if they achieve that, they will both become initiates. So fast forwarding now to the middle part of the second act, where Tamino is in the middle of his second trial. Remember, he's been forced to silence. This is the trial he's undergoing. And of course, it reaches its maximum sort of impact upon him when he's confronted with Pamina. Of course he wants to speak to her. She's speaking to him. She's trying to get him to respond, trying to get some kind of contact with him. He won't give her any. And what follows is this extraordinary aria, Archifus. I suppose in this piece, more than anywhere else in the opera, Pamina is a kind of mirror image to her loved one, to her Tamino, where he sang Disbiltness to her picture, having fallen in love with that. She's singing to the mute hymn. This woman that he is now absolutely fixated with and upon is trying to speak to him, and he will not respond to her. So that's what causes this extraordinary outburst. And in another way, a much bigger way, in the singing of this aria, Pamina is holding up a mirror to all of us. It is one of the most sublime expressions ever, I think, of hopeless love, as if she was looking at him through the most monstrous veil of tears.
So as the opera draws to its climax, of course, Pamina and Tamino have been jointly through the last trial. They've been through the fire, they've been through the water, they've acquitted themselves admirably, and finally they are welcomed into the temple as fully paid-up initiates. Pamina, particularly spectacularly, because she's the first woman they've ever allowed in there. And their reunification, duet, as it were, their ultimate expression of togetherness and of love, lasts two bars. Such is Mozart's need to concentrate purely on the essentials. However, Papageno is still knocking around, and he's uh, rather fallen for a rather elderly lady called Papagena, who uh, is then mysteriously seized from him, just when he thinks he's actually going to kind of sort things out with her. It's part of the whole fairy tale feel of the piece, is that he, you, the audience knows that this lady, although she may be disguised as an old lady, we know that she's going to be the Papagena to his Papageno. Even when she says her name, Papagena, it takes him a while to figure it out for the penny to drop. This aria that I'm about to sing now, I feel it just at the moment where he has realised that he has no place amongst the initiates, that he's not going to seek enlightenment, actually doesn't really care of stuff about enlightenment, uh, so long as he can have a good glass of red wine, and boy, do I know that feeling. <laughs> I think he protests too much, doesn't he? I don't believe that he's absolutely uh, sort of the same person as he was at the beginning of this story. I do believe that some of what's been going on around him, although outwardly he may choose to poo-poo it or to be slightly diffident about it, actually, I think that he must have evolved along the way, and the very fact that actually he does agree to form a, a bond with that rather kind of grim, hag-like looking old woman. And it's only, of course, when he's promised to love her forever that she miraculously transforms into a beautiful young girl. And summing up, I suppose, what it shows us, once again, is that in this piece, characters aren't necessarily individuals as such, they are symbols. You have to remember, as I was saying earlier, that the levelling 18th century Enlightenment philosophy were all equal and essentially the same this is a big shift forward from theatre or music theatre of earlier generations, 16th, 17th century. There, it was much more about the individual, people's differentness and their manipulation by abstract forces. All that is swept away here, and however much one looks at the detail of a particular character and their development and says, well, that doesn't ring true, that doesn't ring true, that is not the point. They're simply vessels for greater truths. Ein Mädchen ohne Weibchen wünscht Papa Gino sich. Oh, so ein sanftes Täubchen, wer Seligkeit für mich, wer Seligkeit für mich, wer Seligkeit für mich. Dann schmeckt er mir trinken und essen, dann könnte ich mit Fürsten mich messen, des Lebens als Weise mich freuen und wie in Elysium sein. Dann könnte ich mit Fürsten mich messen, des Lebens als Weise mich freuen und wie in Elysium sein. In Elysium sein. Melusium 
ein Mädchen oder Weibchen wünscht Papa Genosis. O oh, so ein sanftes Täuschen der Seligkeit für mich, der Seligkeit für mich, der Seligkeit für mich. Ach, kann ich denn keiner von allen den reizenden Mädchen gefallen? Helf einer mir nun aus der Not, sonst gräme ich mich wahrlich zu Tod. Ach, kann ich denn keiner gefallen? Helf einer mir nur aus der Not, sonst gräme ich mich wahrlich zu Tod. Mich wahrlich zu Tod. Mich war nicht so tot. Ein Mädchen oder Weibchen wünscht Papa Genosis. So ein sanftes Täuschen, wer Seligkeit für mich, wer Seligkeit für mich, wer Seligkeit für mich. Wird keiner mir Liebe gewähren, so muss mich die Flamme verzehren. Doch küsst mich kein weiblicher Mund, so bin ich schon wieder gesund. Doch küsst mich ein weiblicher Mund. Doch küsst mich ein weiblicher Mund, so bin ich schon wieder gesund. Schon wieder gesund. Schon wieder gesund. Schon wieder gesund.